Well, happy Sabbath. And uh, it's a privilege to be here before you this morning. I praise the Lord for giving me the opportunity to be here. And not just myself, but here with my wife and a daughter as well. So I thank the Lord for that. It's the first time that they're here in this uh, church in Roanoke, in fact. So uh, it's been a, a nice time for them as well. Um, I'd like to sm- talk this morning based on our scripture reading from 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. I wondered, have you ever th- you know, stopped to contemplate these words? What What is meant in these words. So let's have a look there, shall we? Let us turn to 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to what? It says here to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. I like this text. It talks a text talking about triumphing, about victory, and making the knowledge of God uh, in every place manifest. How? How is it manifest? It says here it's uh, it's manifest in a savor. Now, what are we talking about when we use the word savor? Well, it's a fragrance, an old English word for fragrance, a savor of fragrance, and uh, this is you thought you know, when you think about savory fruit food what are we talking about when we talk about savory food i mean the word we think of savory we think of uh, opposite to sweet right salty but it's not just that it's salty it's savory which means it is very appetizing yeah and you you you, know, you smell that food cooking and the taste buds start watering and you start thinking oh i like to eat that and uh, this is what we're talking about that word savor it's a sweet uh, it's, a, it's a fragrance, a fragrance of God's knowledge by us in every place. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, making manifest this fragrance of God's knowledge by us. And how can we do that? Well, you know, the, um, before I do, though, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, the uh, atmosphere that is encircling this world. You know, there's an atmosphere that we can choose to breathe in and uh, it will have a wonderful effect upon us. We read about it in the book Steps to Christ. I want to share with you from page 68 of this book, Steps to Christ, page 68. It says, in the matchless gift of his son, God has encircled the world with an atmosphere of grace as real as the air which circulates around the globe. I want you to think about that for a moment. There's an atmosphere of grace encircling this world. God has placed it there. And it's as real as this air that we breathe in every day. Now, it says here that all who choose to breathe this life-giving atmosphere will live and grow up to the stature of men and women in Christ Jesus. Now, when I say, if we would, you know, have you ever been asked to breathe in? So someone asks you to do that, you know, maybe, maybe as a child, take a deep breath. So take a breath, just breathe in. Okay, breathe out. All right, now, would you start breathing? Uh, did you only start breathing then when I asked you to? Are you breathing constantly without even realizing it, isn't it? We're breathing constantly. We don't even realize it and we are benefiting from that air. Do you know that 
Um, it's only when we breathe in the deep breaths, the, the breaths that get right down to the, uh, to the, to the depths of our lungs, you know, that we call it di the diaphragmatic, diaphragmatic breathing, you know, really opening the lungs up. Uh, that's the air that really uh, uh, rejuvenates us, you know, because there's a lot of stale oxygen down there, you know, getting rid of that oxygen is what we need to do, taking those deep breaths. And I kind of think this in a similar light with God's grace. You know, we, we breathe in the benefits of God's grace every day. We breathe in the, the blessings of that grace. Even if we be don't believe in God, there's many that don't believe in God, yet they are still blessed by that atmosphere of grace. I mean, Jesus uh, said of our Heavenly Father that He makes His Son to shine on the just and on, on the unjust, yeah, and sends His rain on the righteous and the wicked. He's no respecter of persons in that regard. He, he, he sends down these blessings every day. For what purpose? For what purpose? Why does He do that? Why does He send all these blessings down? Well, to show us that He... Loves us, yeah, that he loves us. And what makes all these blessings possible? You know, what puts, you know, the, what, puts the, what has put the food on our table? You know, the bread on our table and the water that we drink. What has put that there? Do you know what has put it there? There's one thing that's only, only one thing that's put that there on our tables. Do you know what that is? Yeah, the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Without his sacrifice, none of these blessings would be realized. In fact, we wouldn't even be here today. Our hearts are kept beating only because of his sacrifice for us. And so God, in giving us his son, he has given us everything and all the blessings we have, the material blessings, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the food that we eat, the, the, the roofs over our head, the clothes on our back, all comes to us as a result of the cross. And it's a beautiful statement we read. I don't have the reference for you, but you'll find it in the book, Desire of Ages. It says, every loaf we eat, every, every um, uh, cup of water we drink, and every loaf we eat of bread has the cross of Christ stamped upon it. Do you know that? The cross of Christ is stamped upon it. And that's something that, that you know, we need to take a moment to, 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 uh, to breathe in <laughs> that atmosphere. That's the atmosphere that we need to breathe into, the realization that everything that you have, uh, you only have because of Jesus. Whether you believe in him or not, even the atheist who uh, denounces any, any such thing as God, his heart is kept beating because of Jesus. Do you know, this is when, you know, for those who do choose to breathe in, to those who do respond to this atmosphere of grace, where does it lead them? What will happen to them? Well, in John 12, 32, what did Jesus say? In John 12, 32, he said, If and I, if I be lifted up, I will do what? I will draw all men unto me. And being lifted up means what? What was, what was Jesus talking about when he said, If I be lifted up? What was he talking about right then at that time, 2,000 years ago, when he said those words? What was he talking about? The cross, the crucifixion, the Calvary, being lifted up in death. That's him when he will draw all men unto him. That's when we behold him, the sinless one, the perfect and pure and holy and good, giving his life 
as a ransom for many. That's when is by beholding that we will be drawn to the foot of the cross. As we read in Christ's Object Lessons, page 163, uh, as the sinner drawn by the power of Christ approaches the uplifted cross and prostrate, prostrates himself before it, there is a new creation. A new heart is given him holiness. He becomes, sorry, he becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. Holiness finds it has nothing more to require. Isn't that beautiful? Holiness has nothing more to require than for you to prostrate yourself, to bow in submission at the foot of the cross. Because what happens there? What happens there? A new creation. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9. Who knows what that says? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's a very common verse that we quote quite often when we're talking about salvation by grace. grace. Okay, what's it say there? Grace, yes. for, for we are saved. What does it say? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You are saved solely and wholly by the grace of God. Nothing you can do can merit you, uh, His favour towards you. He has gone out in favour towards you of His own goodness, of His own love. He has manifested His favour toward us as sinners. In giving us his son. That's why it says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have, ever, but have everlasting life. So it's not of works. Nothing we can do can, can recommend us to God's favour. You know, that's the reality of, of, our, of, the, of, of humanity. Nothing we can do. It's God who's manifested his favour to us, his sinners. Why? Because he loves us. He can't help but love us and doesn't want to see us perish. So we need to appreciate that. But you know what? So many people, Christians, stop at this verse. They stop at verse 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. They stop there. But the rest of the thought is concluded in verse 10. What does verse 10 say? Have you read verse 10? Do you often hear people voting, quoting 8 and 9 and 10? What does 10 say? It gives the reason why it's not of our works. What's it say here? It says here in verse 10, For we are his workmanship. In other words, we are the work of his hands. Created, now it says here, created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works. That's why you can't boast as a Christian. Why? Because God created you where? He recreated you at the foot of the cross. When you bow in, in hum humility and submission there, accepting Jesus' forgiveness, accepting his righteousness, and, and giving him your all, your heart, your filthy rags, then he creates you anew in him. He gives you that new heart that desires to do nothing but serve him and love him through thick and thin. And this is what uh, people don't realize, that we've been at the foot of the cross, created in Jesus for good works, which God, it goes on to say here in verse 10, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. God has already ordained for you and me a life of good works. So people say, oh, is, we're not saved by our works. No, we're not saved by our works, but you're not saved without them. <laughs> 
Because it's salvation and good works are hand, go hand in hand. Salvation is being saved for good works. I mean, if you want to tie it together, if you just go over, come over to Titus and you'll see um, that the, the gospel in essence, quoted in about three or four verses here in Titus, Paul uh, summarizes it once more for us in, uh, where are we, Titus chapter... I'm looking at chapter 3 and uh, verse um, 4 onwards. Uh, Well, verse 3 tells us, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's how we were. But what has God done? And this is the gospel again here. What has God done? It says, "But But after the kindness... And love of God, our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done. So he didn't do this towards us. He didn't show his kindness and love because of our works of righteousness. It says here, but according to what? His mercy. According to his mercy, he saved us. How? Now this is important. How does he saved us? It's not just by faith, but how does it say here now? We saw before it was by grace through faith, yeah? But not of ourselves. But how is it said, said here? It says here what? By the washing of what? Regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So what's regeneration? What's another phrase we can use for regeneration? Starts with, first word starts with B. Born again, yeah. Christ's uh, lesson to uh, Christ's, um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, uh, interview with Nicodemus. There, um, he expressed it. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. To be born again is to be regenerated, to be renewed in the Holy Ghost, so that we no longer live according to those diverse uh, 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 lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating and hating. Hateful and hating one another, so that we no longer live that way. God, through the Holy Spirit, regenerates us. Regenerate to make new again. That's what He does. He makes us new again within. And that's why it says we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And this is what God's grace does for us. And so, so He creates us. For what reason does He do this? That we might live on, live an abundant life of good works. And that's why it says, verse 6, um, that This kindness and love he shed upon us in verse 6 says, Abundantly through who? Through Jesus Christ our Saviour, that being justified by his grace. Verse 7, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. By being justified, we are made heirs. Made heirs according to this hope of eternal life. And this is where... Uh, people miss it, miss the point here. God creates us. Salvation is about being created anew in Christ Jesus for this life of good works. And so when now, so um, keeping this in mind now, I want to, for us for a moment, to um, come back to an Old Testament illustration um, of... of uh, the um, of this sweet fragrance or the sweet savour that we spoke about in the beginning, 
And I'm going to tie this together with what we're just talking about now. I want to come back to Exodus 29 and verse 18. And we'll see here that um, when the children of Israel were told to offer up certain offerings, one of those for their sins, one of those offerings was a, a ram. It says, it says here, thou shalt burn the whole ram upon the altar. I'm reading from Exodus 29:18. Thou shalt burn the whole ram upon the altar. It is a burnt offering unto the Lord. It is a, what does it say here? A sweet savour, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Now, when it comes to this, the knowledge of God, that is the knowledge of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, which the world needs to hear in order to have an opportunity to accept this gospel message. That knowledge is to be made manifest by who? Who's it to be made manifest? By who? By us. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to make manifest this sweet savour of God's knowledge. And you look at the connection here. Come over to, um, well, when I'm just thinking about it here. You know, when you're offering up, they were to offer up this uh, ram and it was a, the words used there, sweet savour. When you think about that, um, I'm reminded of growing up as a child. Um, I, uh, I'm a veg vegetarian now, as you, as you all know, I'm a vegetarian. But, but at that time, I wasn't. Uh, and we would um, uh, often, not often, but on a regular occasion, she would have a barbecue. Now, anyone ever had a, been to a barbecue where it's, it's red meat that's been cooked? Yeah? Now, as you're walking past, now you could, you could in fact be walking past on the footpath, walking past houses and the barbecue's in the backyard, but you're walking past and you smell this smell coming over. And, you know, you, and it's, the, it's, the, it's the meat cooking and it's the onions uh, cooking and it's all this, this sweet smelling. Well, it's, you know, I'll say sweet smelling because it's a, it's a watering for those who are used to that sort of uh, uh, diet. It's, it was a... It was a it was attractive to their taste. And so you, you would uh, walk past and you could smell this. I imagine that's what was going on here. This aroma was going throughout the camp. But what was it signifying? What was had to be burned? It says, it says the whole ram was burnt upon the altar to be a sweet-smelling savour. Why was it sweet to the Lord? What made it sweet to the Lord? What did that ram represent? Forgiveness. Yeah, forgiveness. Brought about through who? Through Jesus and his death on the cross, yeah? And so we find this now, if you come over to Ephesians 2 verse 10, Ephesians 2, I'm sorry, not Ephesians 2, Ephesians 5 verse 2, I should say. Ephesians 5 and verse 2. Look what it says here. The Apostle Paul, actually starting with verse 1, he writes this. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for a what? Sweet-smelling savour, a sweet-smelling fragrance. This is what Jesus' offering represented. The connection with the sanctuary services made very clear here of what this sweet smell was. It was the fragrance of Christ and His righteousness, His righteous offering, and the forgiveness that that has provided for all of mankind.
Let me share with you from a wonderful little statement here, Signs of the Times, February the 14th, 1900. ST, February 14, 1900. Christ's offering is complete. It's complete. And as our intercessor, he executes his self-appointed work, holding before God the censer containing his own spotless merits and the prayers, confessions and thanksgiving of his people. Your prayers, your confessions, your thanksgiving are held before God in the censer that Jesus is holding there in figure here. Perfume, it tells us here now, perfumed with the fragrance of his righteousness, these ascend to God as a sweet-smelling savour. So it's not just the life of Jesus and his death on the cross of Calvary, but taking it a step further, it's our prayers, our confessions, our thanksgivings that are ascending to God as a sweet-smelling savour. Why? What makes them sweet-smelling before God? What is mingled with those prayers and confessions and thanksgiving? What is it? It's mingled. It says here, Christ's merits, His righteousness. That's what makes it acceptable to God. Unless we claim that, those merits, unless we claim Jesus' righteousness as our own and, and come to Him in that spirit, not in the spirit of our own works, justifying ourselves before Him, but in the spirit of Jesus, asking Him to accept us, not because of any good thing we've done, but because He loves us and saved us and promises to renew us and recreate us. And as we confess our sins to Him, offer our prayers, praising Him, all of that is offered up to our Heavenly Father, mingled with His righteousness, and that's what makes it acceptable. So when God sees and hears all these things, He is seeing and hearing Jesus, not you. He sees Jesus' righteousness, not your filthy rags. And uh, that's what makes it wholly acceptable with our Father in Heaven. And now, what then does God use on this earth to make manifest the knowledge of himself as a sweet fragrance? What does he now use? You and me. You and me. That's what, the, that's what 2 Corinthians 2.14 says. That he causes us always to triumph uh, in Christ, it says here. He causes us always to triumph making uh, in Christ and makes manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. Now the question is, are you a sweet-smelling savour? Are you a sweet-smelling fragrance for God? And we're not talking here about deodorant. We're not talking about perfume. We're talking about our life. Is our life a fragrant smell for those around us? Are they attracted to it? Do they see something... Uh, um, you know, you know, Jeremiah says, "Oh, taste and see what that the Lord is good." And do and we and to taste something, you know, often if you if it you know before you taste it, you smell it, right? And that's why people, if uh, they if they have lost their sense of smell, what happens to their ability to taste food? It diminishes, yeah, greatly diminished their ability to smell because our, our our somehow our our smell sense is is directly related to that, and so that's why. To, to, to know that this is going to taste good, you first have to smell it, yeah? You know, when, you, when you, someone says, here, try this, so what's the first thing you do? 
you haven't tried it before, what's the first thing you do? Smell. Is that all right? And you smell and see if it, if it smells any good. <laughs> and if it smells off, are you going to put it in your mouth? No way. If that thing smells off, there's no way I'm going to put that in my mouth. And this is the, now this is the point. If you're walking about and people are looking at your life and it smells off, there's no way they're going to taste and see that the Lord is good. Why? Because your life is not witnessing to that reality. Your life becomes, as it says in Scripture, a stink. It's like a stink before God. You know, um, we have to realize, and I want to share with you, uh, there's a wonderful passage um, section, actually, in Christ Object Lessons. It starts about page 339. It goes on to about page 341, 342. But it's all about the influence that we um, manifest in our life. It says here, every soul, just like our world is surrounded by an atmosphere of grace, so every soul, it, goes, it says here, is surrounded by an atmosphere of its own. An atmosphere, it may be charged with the life-giving power of faith, courage and hope, and sweet with the fragrance of love. Or it may be heavy and chill with the gloom of discontent and selfishness or poisonous with the deadly taint of cherished sin. By the atmosphere surrounding us, every person we come in contact with is consciously or unconsciously affected. Do you realize that? Every person, no matter who they are, every one of you in this room is consciously or unconsciously influencing the person next to you. We, we, we can't help but have that effect. This is just the law of nature. It's one of those laws of nature. It's like gravity. You can't escape it. You have an influence on all that you come in contact with. And the question is, what is that influence that you're having? You know, what is, in order for our life to be accepted as a sweet smelling savor to God and for our, our life to be a sweet fragrance to those around us, what is required of us? Let me, let me share just a few thoughts on this for a moment. Um, if you come over to Ezekiel chapter 20, and we'll see here, Ezekiel 20, um, God was uh, talking here about, you know, Israel had been taken into captivity for their sin. And, you know, Ezekiel was living in a time of Babylonian captivity. So we're looking at a time when God is going to restore Israel as a nation in the future. And he talks here about what he's going to do for his people. He's going to gather them together by the gospel message. But he goes on to say here um, in verse uh, 40, For in mine holy mountain, I'm reading uh, Ezekiel 20 verse 40, For in mine holy mountain, and it's going to be verse 40 and 41, in, in my holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith the Lord God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me, there will I accept them, and there will I require your offerings and the first fruits of your oblations with all your holy things. I will accept you with your sweet savour, and I will bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein you have been scattered. And I, this is the point here, I will be what? What's it say here? I will be sanctified in you. 
before who? The heathen. Not just before me, God said here, but before the heathen. I will be sanctified in you. What does that mean? It means that God's holiness, His purity, His goodness will be seen in you by all those who are unbelieving. They will see His purity, His goodness, His holiness in you. That's the, what God promises here to do for the Israel and for all who accept the gospel message. That's what He wants to do. How can that be? How can that be in us? Well, well, come over to Romans 12. The Apostle Paul puts it plainly here for us. Romans 12. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren. Romans 12. I'm reading verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? Let's say. A what kind of sacrifice? Living. A living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God. That's holy is H-O-L-Y, which means sanctified. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You know, God said in Isaiah 1:18, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Yeah, God is not a God of force. He doesn't coerce you to serve Him. He simply wants you to reason about it. Consider your life. Consider the sin of your life. Are you wanting to just hang on to that and die in your sins? Look what I've done for you to save you from all that. And then He, and then he presents to you Himself. Look what I've done. And we only have to then look at the cross and behold Jesus. And if we do behold, we will be led. The power of Christ will draw us to the foot of the cross and there, as we prostrate ourselves before it, a new creation takes place. You know, we, in other words, we are sacrificing ourselves. We're giving ourselves up to Him. As the Apostle Paul said in Galatians, uh, he said there in Galatians, um, I live, yet not I, but what? Christ lives in me. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In Galatians uh, yeah, 2 and verse 20. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I live now, I live by the faith, live now in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. So this is a living sacrifice we're talking here, where you've sacrificed your old life with all its lusts, the pleasures of sin, all the things this world has to offer. You've shunned all that. You've renounced it all. You've reckoned yourself, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 6.11, reckon yourself dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. That's what happens here. It's a living sacrifice. You've reckoned yourself dead, you've sacrificed yourself, but now you're alive. How? In Christ. We're alive in Him. And so we become holy and acceptable to God. And that's the way that, we make, that our life becomes that sweet fragrance. Because the, the fragrance only can become sweet if it's sacrificed, right? That ram can only give off a, a, a sweet-smelling savour if it's first slain and laid on the altar and burn. And that's what God requires of us. We first need to be slain and laid on the altar. And it reminds me um, of uh, a wonderful uh, illustration. Um, Sister White 
uh, spoke about this. I forget, I don't have the reference in front of me, but you know the story. Uh, she had a picture on her wall. And this picture, there was, in the middle of the picture was an altar. An altar. And on one side of the altar, there was an ox. Okay, an ox. And on the other side of the altar, there was uh, a yoke. There was a yoke. Right. So there was an ox. Actually, no, I think it was the other way around. The ox was in the middle. The, the altar was on this side and the yoke on that side. So there was an ox here. There was an altar here and a yoke here. And underneath was a motto, a slogan, and it said, ready for either. The ox was ready for either. To take up the yoke in service, whatever that service might be, or to place itself on that altar and be burnt. It's a sweet-smelling favor to God. Ready for either. And she says, this is to be the motto of the Christian. Ready for either. To be a sweet-smelling savor, we need to sacrifice ourselves, to be a living sacrifice. That's why it says here, I'm going to share with you from Review and Herald, uh, February the 5th, 1884. Review and Herald, February the 5th, 1884. Uh, God despises... You know, there's so many things God despises, but one of these things he despises, it says here, God despises a dead offering. He despises a dead offering. He requires a living sacrifice with intellect, sensibilities, and will fully enlisted in his service. Every distinctive faculty should be devoted to this work. Our feet swift to move at the call of duty our hands ready to act when work is to be done, our lips prepared to speak the truth in love and show forth the praise of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And we should continue this consecration not taking anything from the altar. You know, we say, what do we give? We give all when we give ourselves to Christ. But then, Wait a minute, if giving all, some, we come to a point where, oh, just a minute, that's, oh, I don't really want to give myself that much. And we pull back, we hold back with something. When we do that, do you know what that's called? When you do that, when you, when you put yourself on the altar, but then you don't continue that consecration. When you pull back, do you know what that is called? Well, this, this sentence is concluded with this next four words. For this is sacrilege. It's sacrilege. When you put yourself on the altar and then don't continue this consecration. When you start taking something off the altar, that's sacrilege. You know, when his people thus consecrate themselves in sincerity and humility, they are accepted of God and they become a sweet-smelling savour diffusing a rich fragrance throughout all the earth. Jesus is asking you to put everything, all you have, your talents, your time, your means, your job, your education, everything, to put it all on the altar of sacrifice. 
and be ready to serve him as a living sacrifice, to take up that yoke and serve him with all of those talents and all those with your money, with your means, with your, your uh, strength, with your energy, to serve the Lord with everything. That's why Jesus said to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy strength, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. You know, everything, to love him with everything. That is being a living sacrifice. <laughs> and, uh, you know, to do and to die for God, that's, that's just what is recall, required of us. And when you do do that, guess whose example you're following? Guess Jesus. Um, I'm, I'm, one of my favorite sentences in the book Desire of Ages, I don't have the reference for you again, because I can't remember references, right? I remember the phrase. It says this, from his earliest years, Jesus was possessed of one purpose. Who can finish the sentence? He lived to do others good. Oh, he lived to bless others. Bless others. Yeah, this is what it says. He lived to bless others. From his earliest years, living to bless others. It goes on to say, in a, from the manger to the cross, uh, in, a, in another part of the book, it says, from the manger to the cross, the call to um, uh, a life in Christ was a call to self-surrender. You know, from the manger to the cross. Christ's life was a call to self-surrender. From the manger to the cross. You have to live to bless others. Who are we living for? You know, when we, when we do the things that we do, who are we living for? You know, is our life a savour of life? Is it, is, or is it a savour of death? You know, the Bible talks about this. We, if you come back to our scripture reading, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, you come to the next verse. With verse 14 we read, but come to verse 15 and 16. It says here that, For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. So we're both. We're a, saver, a sweet savour to God in them that are saved and in them that perish. Why? Well, it says in verse 16, To the one we are a savour of death unto death, and to the other a savour of life unto life. How can that be, be a savour of death unto death? Well, as you bring a sweet-smelling savour to that person, and they smell it, their taste buds start watering, but they don't eat it, what happens? They go away, and they've been convicted, but not converted. And, yet, and your influence, and your words, and, your, and, and whatever you've witnessed, you've given to them, becomes a testimony that stands against them. And there are some people whose life is so good, that people just can't stand them. Have you ever been in that situation? Where, I don't know what it is, but... Maybe like in, in a certain environment, um, I've worked in a couple of commercial environments and in one of those environments, I don't know what it was, this one person just hated me. I couldn't work it out. And, uh, uh, you know, because you don't swear, you don't drink, you don't get involved in, the, in all the festivities they get involved with at work. And for some reason, they just don't like you. There's nothing you can do to change that. Nothing. All, you can, all you're doing is just living your life. And that has a, a negative effect on that person. And, there, and therefore your life becomes a savour of death unto death to that person. Um, but for those who are saved, <laughs> what is your life? It's a savour of life unto life. And that's the question. Are you a savour of life unto life? What happens, however, um, uh, let me just see here for a minute. Yeah. What happens, however, if we um, try to free ourselves from having an influence on somebody? Is it possible to free ourselves 
from having an influence on somebody. Well, the only way you can do that is lock yourself up away in solitary confinement. That's the only way you can do that. But even then you don't have a, uh, you're not free from it. Why? Because the memory of you is left with people. Okay, what they remember of you is left with them. Now, let me share with you Christ's Operative Lesson 339. You know, the effect we have upon others is a responsibility from which we cannot free ourselves. The effect that I have on you and you have on me, I can't free myself from it and you can't free yourself from it. We can't free ourselves. Our words, our acts, our dress, our deportment, even the expression of the countenance has an influence. Don't let people fool you into thinking that you know, it doesn't matter what you wear. Oh, he's the one with the problem. <laughs> we often hear that, you know, particularly in, in relation to what a woman wears and the effect it has on a man. And you hear the, the expression, oh, that's just his dirty mind. You know, it doesn't matter what I wear. But no, you have an influence. Sure, a person has a responsibility to control their thoughts, but you have a, a responsibility to dress in a way that's not going to suggest impure thoughts. You follow what I'm saying there? Okay, so it's a two-way street. You have that responsibility, and it's no excuse for a person to think, because the, the solution, if you're, if you're walking down the street, Jesus said, and you look on a woman, and you lust after her in your heart, what have you done? You've committed adultery. And if she's dressed in a way to entice you to do that, it's even worse, Right? But what is Jesus? What's, what's the solution to that? What's the solution from your perspective as a as a as a as a, um, as a person who's being tempted? What's your what's the, what's the solution to that? Guess what it is. Look away. <laughs> That's the solution. David says, "I was not set my eyes on any wicked thing." Right? So look away. You know. And it's a real problem because in some places you work and the, and the way women dress makes it very difficult, particularly when one of them is your manager and she wants you, look at me when I'm talking to you. And you're like, it's hard, no. I had a manager like that, all right, in one place I worked. But this is the reality that we, and we're faced with. So it's, not, it's my responsibility to, to, to be, um, well, I have a responsibility for my thoughts and how I react, but each one of us has responsibility for the influence that we're having on that other person. So we can't, we've got to be careful with that, brothers and sisters. And not only that, but our acts, the things that we do, how you're doing it, what you're doing, where you're going, the places you go, the recreation you get involved with. Let's go to the gym. Yeah, great, fantastic. But guess what's at the gym? Particularly if it's a mixed gym, male and females together at the gym. Guess what's there? <laughs> Unclad bodies. <laughs> Half-clad bodies, you know, let's go to the gym and, and do something to get some fit. Yeah, we'll get fit, right? That's all right. <laughs> sure, we'll get fit. We'll get, fit. we'll get in a fit. That's what will happen because <laughs> from what we're seeing, you know, it's like, oh, get me out of here. Get me out of here. I mean, no, you've got to think about, brothers and sisters, where we're going, what we're doing. And not only that, but the music. Let's go ice skating. Great. Let's go ice skating. And you go ice, the ice skating rink, having a nice recreational fun. And guess what they put on? All the rock and pop music, bang, 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 thumping away there for two hours at the skating arena. How can you go ice skating in that environment? What's that music going to do to you? You just want to get out of there, right? And these are, you've got to think about all these influences that are affecting us and what we're doing about them. 
you know, and what influence that we're having on others because of, because your example, people will look at you and follow you. They won't, you know, it's, it's not your words that, 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 that so much as what you do is what's going to have an effect on people. And that's why it says elsewhere that the, that the um, you know, that, that, that wonderful statement where we read it often before that um, the silent witness, it's Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 18, the silent witness of a true, unselfish, godly life carries an almost irresistible influence. It's almost irresistible. What kind of life? A true, unselfish, godly life. And that's why salvation, you know, I can't see how we separate works from our salvation because come over here to Titus, you know, our acts of our lives. If you look again in, in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. How has it appeared? Well, it's done it in this way. Teaching us that denying what? Ungodliness. Ungodliness means things that aren't like God, like His character. Denying those things and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly where? In heaven? What does it say? In this present world. That's what God's grace teaches us, brothers and sisters. And that's, what, that's the only way that we can have, an, a, as it says here, an almost irresistible influence. As we do this, that's when our life becomes a sweet fragrance, a sweet-smelling savour to all around. And I just want to, just, just before we close, touch on one more point. Um, is it possible for our life to become a stink to those around us? Is it possible? You know, Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 1, uh, you know, dead flies cause the what? Remember that one, that, that uh, verse? Yeah, dead flies, Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 1, dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth what kind of savour? A stinking savour. And so doth what? A little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honour. So here you are as a Christian with a wonderful reputation and then a little folly is like a fly in that ointment. It, the whole, what happens to the whole jar of ointment? What happens to it? The whole thing goes off and stinks and fills the room with a stink. And that's what happens when someone who's had a, had a character that's been a positive influence engages in a little folly. It just, the whole thing is, becomes nothing. You know, um, I want to share with you um, a statement here from uh, Messages to Young People, page 411. Because in particular for our youth, I want to talk to you with this statement here. You know, there are mysterious links that bind souls together so that the heart of one answers to the heart of another. One catches the ideas, the sentiments, the spirit of another. This association may be a blessing or a curse. The youth may help and strengthen one another, improving in deportment, in disposition, in knowledge, or by permitting themselves to become careless and unfaithful, they might exert an influence that is demoralizing. So, you know, we, for young people, the influence you have on each other is important. And you can be a positive influence on your fellow 
youth or a negative influence. God wants us to be what on this earth? And Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 13, he said, you are the salt of the earth. What is salt in, in, in this, in this uh, context here? What was salt? When G- a preservative. A preservative. It was used as a preservative. So Christians are the preservative in this world. We are to preserve the world from the corrupting influences of the rest of the world around us. You know, that's what it's, that's what it's meaning here. Uh, by these words uh, of Christ, we gain some idea of, of the value of human influence. It is to work with the influence of Christ, to lift where Christ lifts, to impart correct principles and stay the progress of the world's corruption. Are you doing that in your life by the influence you give? It is to diffuse the grace which Christ alone can impart. It is to uplift, to sweeten the lives and characters of others by the power of a pure example united with earnest faith and love. God's people are to exercise a reforming, preserving power in the world. They are to counterwork the destroying, corrupting influences of evil. Is that what you're doing? <laughs> Who wants to do that? Who wants to be this, this, this kind of salt in the earth? Yeah? Do you want to, yeah, that's what God's calling us to, brothers and sisters. Hey, maybe you don't want to be like that because my, that's a tremendous responsibility. I've got to stop all this corruption in the world. Yeah, that's what God means. He's put you in this world as a sweet smelling fragrance to do just that, to stay this tide of evil. The world looks at you and sees something better, something different, and they are attracted to it. And uh, uh, the Saviour, and, and, and you'll see that note, I'll just finish with this, the note on, the, on your bulletin there, the Bible Echo, February 15th. Oh, that, by the way, the other one I just read was Heavenly Places, page 239. Heavenly Places, 239. But the, on your bulletin there, you'll see this statement here, the saving salt, the saver of the Christian is what? What's it say there? Is the love of Jesus where? In the heart. The righteousness of Christ pervading the soul. If the professor of religion would keep the saving efficacy of his faith, he must ever keep the righteousness of Christ before him and have the glory of God for his rearward. Then the power of Christ will be revealed in life and character. And then, brothers and sisters, young people, then... We will be that sweet-smelling savour of God's knowledge in this world. And He then, through that, will cause us to triumph how often? What does that scripture reading say? He causes us to triumph how often? Always. Always triumphing in Him. May this be our experience. Is my wish and prayer for us as a people. Amen. Amen.